Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. Um, this is our fourth episode, uh, but before we get into the show, we wanted to note a few events that have taken place since episode three. Um, firstly, there's been the horrific tragedy at Grenfell Tower in West London. Um, we just wanted to extend our sympathy to the victims and their families and our solidarity to all those uh, fighting for justice in the aftermath. A particular mention should go to the firefighters and other emergency service workers who responded. Um, we believe very strongly that the working class people who died in that fire were killed by capitalism just as much as the workers who died in the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire in New York in 1911 or the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh in 2013. Um, we'll put up some links in the episode description to some of the relief funds and to some of the ongoing protest actions. Uh, secondly, on a slightly more hopeful note, um, cleaning workers at the London School of Economics have won a huge victory in a long-running battle for equality. A sustained campaign of strikes has forced the LSE to withdraw the outsourced contract from the cleaner's employer, Noonan, and bring that work back in-house. Um, it's almost unprecedented for an outsourced workers' dispute to lead to the outsourcing itself being reversed so that's a really huge win and one that really bears celebrating and, and kind of examining to, to learn its lessons um, the LSE cleaners are organized uh, in the United Voices of the World Union and they're a mainly migrant workforce uh, we didn't mention them specifically in our last episode which was about immigration and migrant workers struggles um, but we have been shouting about their dispute a lot on our social media and we just wanted to mention them and send solidarity and congratulations to UVW members at LSE we also wanted to bring you an update on the Picture House cinema workers dispute, which we covered quite extensively in our very first episode and have mentioned a couple of times since. Um, that dispute is still uh, very much ongoing. The next strike date is Friday the 7th of July, which, if we've timed this right, is going to be the day this podcast is released, or if not, um, uh, very shortly before it comes out. Um, the employer, Picture House Cinemas, have... Uh, really raised the stakes in that dispute by sacking four of the Beck 2 trade union reps at the Ritzy Cinema, which is the site where the dispute kind of first kicked off. So as well as being a dispute to win the London Living Wage, uh, maternity and paternity rights, sick pay, union recognition, um, that's now also a fight to get these workers their jobs back and to resist the attempt by the employer to bust their union and to sabotage that dispute by getting rid of some of the key organisers out of the workplace. There have been some really great solidarity actions taking place around that dispute recently. There's been some community picketing at the Ritzy and a couple of other sites. Um, Helen Hayes, who's a Labour MP in South London, um, whose constituency includes the East Dulwich Picture House, which is one of the cinemas involved. She asked a great question about the dispute in Prime Minister's Questions. And Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and various other Labour MPs um, wrote a letter in support of the dispute and protesting the sacking of the trade union reps, which was quite widely published um, on the internet and in the press. So there's been a lot going on and uh, we'll put links to the campaign pages and the strike fund up in the episode description so you can keep up to date with that. Um, and finally, uh, also since our last episode, this has happened. And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party Note, they don't have an overall majority. Now, here at Labour Days, uh, we think that the gains that the Labour Party made in the election on the basis of its most radical manifesto in years are a source of immense hope and inspiration for anyone interested in building working class power. Um, now, there's obviously a really important to be uh, discussion to be had now about where the Labour movement goes from here politically and uh, how we get rid of the Tories. Um, instead of trying to cram that discussion in a sort of protracted form into this podcast and um, we thought we'd slip in a plug for the clarion magazine which is a magazine for um, socialist activists in the labor party um, and in momentum so if you head on over to theclarionmag.org um, you'll find exactly that type of discussion and analysis about um, where the labor movement goes from here politically and our very own ed is a co-editor of that magazine um, so we can definitely vouch for its quality so with all that said, um, in a mood of anger and sadness, but also of defiance and hope, here's episode four. This is Labour, 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 Welcome to Labour Days, I'm Ed, as usual, I'm joined by Ellie. Hi. And Daniel, who you just heard from. 
Uh, we've got Liam, producer Liam, behind the desk, and later on we'll be hearing from Jade Baker, who is an NUT activist in South East London. Today we'll be looking at different forms of union organisation, past and present, and we'll be particularly looking at craft unionism versus industrial unionism. I am I'm so excited for this episode. You remember in episode one when I talked about Farrell Dobbs LARPing? This is like, it. I definitely want to yeah, I definitely <laughs> want to extend that to include like Daniel DeLeon LARPing, Tom Mann LARPing, JT Murphy LARPing. So this is precisely the sort of like geeky historical focus that I wanted this podcast to have. When Look, we if it was it. up to me, the whole thing would be geeky and historical. <laughs> you know, that's not the hook that people is going to draw people in. Well, it depends on it depends on the type of people you want to draw in. History geeks, kind of, yeah. So, craft versus industrial unionism. These terms might sound quite old-fashioned. Craft conjures up an image of some sort of twee homemade ornaments being sold in the grounds of an English heritage property on or, a Saturday afternoon. Or, or on Church Street in Stoke Newington. Indeed, indeed. Artisanal craft toys for... Craft bread. All of craft that. Craft beer. Craft beer, yeah. Craft everything. And there's craft probably union. Craft <laughs> bread, craft beer, craft union. <laughs> and there's probably not many people listening who would think of themselves as industrial workers... Because relatively few people in modern Britain, in Western economies generally, work in manufacturing, which is the sector most closely associated with the term industrial or industry. But as we'll see later, these terms are still extremely relevant and crucially important to how unions organise today. So what do they mean and where do they come from? So in Britain, the earliest unions were craft unions, which meant that they organised small groups of skilled workers doing very specific jobs. And there were thousands of these unions. They were mainly based in particular localities. And for many, many decades, they didn't really grow. They didn't really merge. They sort of kept on doing their own thing, um, which obviously limited their uh, their power. But on the, great, on the plus side, they did have some great names. Uh, these are all genuine names of trade unions which used to exist. The Oldham Provincial Card and Blowing Room Operatives Association... That sounds vaguely died. <laughs> I don't know what a blowing room is, but the Denton Silk Hat Trimmers and Stitchers Union. So if you want your silk hat trimmed and stitched, you know who to go to for that. <laughs> the Gateshead and District Amalgamated Association of Beamers, Twisters and Drawers. <laughs> I don't know what a beamer, a twister or a drawer works. It sounds like a 60s dance, doesn't it? Uh, but as it was an amalgamated association, presumably they all used to have their own association. <laughs> and the Dis United, not Disunited, Dis is a, is a place, apparently. The Dis United Coconut Fibre Mat and Matting Weavers <laughs> Trade Society. <laughs> Yes, because uh, Homer Simpson's union at the power plant is called the International Brotherhood of Nuclear Technicians, Jazz Dancers and Pastry Chef. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the central tenets of these craft unions... Can, can I, before you go any further, can I just say that if there are any coconut mat weavers or blowing room operatives... <laughs> we didn't mean any offence. ...listening to this, to this show... We are not trying to belittle your trade. No, if if, skills. if, if anything, you're <laughs> you're the people this. that we're targeting most with this podcast. So, so one of the central fundamental tenets of, of these craft unions, these organisations, um, was and arguably is to restrict and control the entry of workers into a particular trade. And they reason that by doing this, they can defend union conditions and maintain high wages in a sort of supply and demand sort of idea, you know. Um, And this led to unions supporting things like the apprenticeship system. For example, if you wanted to be a skilled engineer and get your engineering union card, you had to do six or seven years of engineering apprenticeships first. Um, And it also meant, I would argue, that craft uh, craft unionism naturally tends towards a sort of conservatism, small c conservatism, where what you're mainly trying to do is maintain your status quo against various changes that might be happening around you, whether it's technological changes or social changes or, or whatever. Um, it meant, for example, that a lot of craft unions for a long, long, long time were very hostile to women entering the workplace, still less being allowed to be trade union members. 
Um, so that conservatism uh, existed even when craft unions adopted radical methods, which they occasionally did. In the 1860s, in my hometown of Sheffield, some of the grinders' unions in the cutlery trade adopted very, very militant methods of dropping gunpowder down the chimneys of non-union workers <laughs> in an attempt to blow them up. <laughs> or sabotaging their grinding wheels in an attempt to shatter the grinding wheel, uh, f- f- wounding perhaps fatally uh, the non-union worker who was working on it. Um, but generally speaking, craft unions were quite conservative. They favoured sort of slow sort of methods of and 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 represented what what would be called kind of respectable uh, sections of the working class. Um, and again, the nature of craft unionism uh, intrinsically sort of pits different groups of workers against each other because they're all sort of defending their own patch and defending their own uh, their own position. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, Eugene Debs, who was uh, an American socialist and an, uh, an industrial unionist, which I'll, I'll get on to explaining what I'm, that means in a minute, um, he criticised craft unionism in the following terms. He said, Is there not something wrong with a unionism in which the workers are nearly always worsted? Let me review hurriedly some of the history of the past few years. I have seen the conductors on the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad organised in a craft union take the places of the striking union locomotive engineers on the same system. I have seen the employees of the Missouri, Kansas and Texas Railway, organised in their several craft unions, stand by the corporation as a unit, totally wiping out the union telegraphers, 1,300 of them losing their jobs. There has been a ceaseless repetition of this form of scabbing of one craft union upon another until the working man, if his eyes are open, is bound to see that this kind of unionism is a curse and not a benefit to the working class. So throughout the 19th century, there were some early attempts made to organise unions on a different basis to craft, on an all-class basis. In this country, uh, the socialist Robert Owen attempted to set up something called the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union, as early as the 1830s. In America, in the 1880s, uh, an organisation that we've mentioned before on this podcast with a fantastic name, the Knights of Labour, was set up um, as as an alternative to the American Federation of Labour, which was largely organised on a craft basis. Uh, But what really made people think differently about how trade unions were, were formed and their structure was what some historians call the second industrial revolution in the late 19th century, um, where really, really big industrial workplaces, factories, uh, big sort of docks and ports with thousands of people working in them um, took off and grew in pretty much every sort of European, North American country around the world. Um, It was the era of mass production, the the factory system, and also... The integration of a lot of firms. So, um, for example, in this country, uh, shipbuilding firms who had their shipyards on the coast would buy steelworks inland, and then those workers would all be suddenly would all be working for the same employer. In America, famously, the turn of the century was the era of monopolies in the railroads and in steel and in other industries. So it it, it was tending towards this this situation where you had fewer and fewer employers and you had bigger and bigger workforces working for them. Um, So what a new idea took hold in this situation, industrial unionism, which meant that all workers in an industry, regardless of their skill or their grade, should be in the same union. And taken to its logical conclusion meant also that all of these industrial unions should link up into one big union. This movement was based both on unskilled workers who'd been drawn into the labour market and also on skilled workers in industries that were undergoing very rapid changes. So a lot of engineers, traditionally very highly skilled and quite craft in their outlook, began to look around them and think, perhaps our existing organisations aren't really uh, fit for purpose in this changing landscape. Um, Hanging on to this idea of industrial unionism were all sorts of other more radical ideas. Um, People like Tom Mann began to develop... uh, Tom Mann was a great uh, uh, trade union organiser who I think is worthy of an entire podcast by himself to look at his career because he 
he was all over the place at the turn of the century. He had, he had the knack of, you know, stepping off a boat in a particular country and then, you know, two weeks later there was a general strike. And whether it was coincidence or whether it was him doing it, um, who knows? People like him, they came up with all sorts of more radical ideas that when you organise these industrial unions, when you'd got to a point where you'd organised enough workers in a particular industry, that you would basically be able to use those unions to take control of that industry and ultimately take control of society. Um, You'd have a sort of replacing the parliament that we have, you'd have a sort of parliament of labour, a, a sort of parliament of industrial unions. This is this is syndicalism. This is this is what this is what people call syndicalism. And it's important to uh, make a distinction because not all industrial unionists were syndicalists. Some industrial unionists were not that radical at all. They just wanted a merger of a few unions in their industry into a slightly bigger version of what they already had. Um, whereas some of them were revolutionary syndicalists who advocated a much more militant um, model of trade union organising. This movement, this development, was remarkably sort of contemporaneous across many countries. Um, So you had, just before the First World War in this country, you had a big wave of strikes in big industry. You had in France, uh, the CGT adopted an industrial unionist model of organising. That was the main trade union federation there. And you had in America, um, the American Railroad Workers Union, which was Debs's union, um, which adopted industrial uh, unionist methods. You also had the Western Federation of Miners, uh, which was one of the constituent, big constituent uh, organisations which founded the Industrial Workers of the World uh, in 1905, who are still around the Industrial Workers of the World, but at their height in the early 20th century, they had something like a quarter of a million members in, in America and, and were involved in some very militant very militant strikes. Um, so, as I mentioned, just before the First World War in this country, from about 1910, was a period called the Great Unrest, which is like, this is my entire deal. If I could just talk about this every month for three hours, I'd be happy, you know. Um, I, I, think, I, I think that would be fine, personally. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I think, I'm, I think I'm the... Vita in the three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think the listenership would soon dwindle. To no, they, they, they'd both be happy with it. But it's quality over quantity, <laughs> isn't it? Taking a craft unionist position to the listenership. <laughs> so, from about 1910, there were big, big, big industrial disputes um, for reasons that I don't really have time to go into in most big industries. You would if we had a three-hour podcast. (laughs) If we had a three-hour podcast, which I'm lobbying for (laughs) hard. So, for example, um, it sort of kicked off with a coal miners' strikes in South Wales. And out of that came a very, very important text called The Miners' Next Step, which was a plea for the miners' union to reorganise itself on an industrial basis and on a militant basis. Um, In 1911... There was a huge strike of transport workers um, in Liverpool, well, nationally, but particularly in Liverpool, it developed sort of into a general strike. And that was one of those examples where Tom Mann was in the right place at the right time, played a key role on the the strike committee there, along with local activists. And um, the key element of that strike was the idea that no matter how many grades or different types of worker or different trades existed on the Liverpool docks, um, which was a very complex workplace, that no, none of those sections of work workers would go back to work, even if they were offered what they were demanding, until everyone else had also been offered their demands as well. And that's what Tom Mann called industrial solidarity, and that was a very a really clear break from the sort of craftist position of, you know, you get, you fight your own corner, you get what you want and then you, and then everyone else can just sod off basically. Um, And the other thing that happened during this period were a lot of unions merged because as I say, early unions tended to be local. They tended to represent certain grades and all the rest of it over time. And as a result of the agitation of um, people in what was called the amalgamation movement, uh, a lot of these unions merged into the sort of forerunners of the unions that we have today. So most significantly uh, in this period, you had the formation of the National Union of Railwaymen, Mm -hmm. um, which um, 
Interestingly, even at the time, there was a debate around uh, whether it was sexist to call it the National Union yes, of Railway Workers. Yes, there was, yeah, there was or indeed. the National Union of Railway Workers, um, which is the forerunner of, uh, of, of the RMT today. Um, and then post the First World War, you had really, really big amalgamations. Um, the Transport and General Workers Union was founded. Um, there were limitations to this. So, for example, after the First World War, uh, the Amalgamated Engineering Union uh, was founded from a merger of about seven or eight or nine small uh, uh, craft engineering unions. Uh, and despite the fact that Tom Mann was the first president of the AEU, um, it was still a craft union. It was it, all, all that had happened is that smaller craft unions had merged into a bigger craft union. And in fact, it took a second world war for the AEU to even admit women into membership, mm-hmm. despite the fact that millions of women had worked in the, in the munitions industry in the first world war. So it, this, this was a long, very long, long, long process. Um, and I'm not going to bring it all the way up to date because there's no time. But I just wanted to focus on the late 19th, early 20th century as this period where this idea of industrial unionism really took hold. And perhaps we can talk about, in the modern movement, how successful that idea has been, where craft unionism might still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, One of the other uh, problems with industrial unionism is that it sounds very simple and it sounds very nice, um, but there are debates over what constitutes an industry so for example if you were an engineer in the turn of the 20th century you could be working in all sorts of different types of factories where loads of different types of things were made and you might move around a lot Um, so is the industry there the factory that you happen to be working in at the time or or is the industry engineering which then separates you off from other people working in the same workplace and i think there's an analogy there with cleaners today you know if you're a cleaner in Canary Wharf, do you work in the finance industry? Or do you just work in the cleaning industry and does it make sense to organise with other cleaners because you might have a second job in a totally different office somewhere else? Um, and one of the big uh, issues uh, about industrial unionism today is because we're not just setting up unions um, and then growing them. We've already got a trade union movement would the creation of industrial unions today require us to sort of break apart and put back together uh, unions that currently exist, which perhaps have merged for the wrong reasons or mergers, the mergers don't make much sense industrially? Uh, and which union do we think in Britain is most like an industrial union or has most gone, gone the furthest towards realising that sort of model of organisation? So that was uh, Professor Edmund the Brain Mustill with a, a kind of historical survey there. Um, he's suggested some kind of questions and areas for discussion, which we're going to return to a little bit later in the episode. But before we did that, we wanted to kind of bring this issue bang up to date and uh, talk about something in the contemporary labour movement, which sort of relates to all of this. Um, so we're very lucky to be joined by Jade Baker, who's a teacher in South East London, um, and an activist in the National Union of Teachers. She's on uh, their uh, NUT committee in Lewisham, um, who's going to be talking to us about the recent merger of the NUT with the Association for Teachers and Lecturers, the ATL, to form the National Education Union. So we're speaking to Jade about the ways in which this kind of points towards um, an industrial unionist model um, for school workers and some of the um, quite exciting prospects, but also the challenges that uh, this involves. Jade, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe just to start with, do you want to give us a little bit of a, a background to this merger, what the unions were that were involved and kind of where it came from? Yeah, so um, to begin, I'll talk a little bit about the history of the NUT, which Dan said is the National Union of Teachers. So it was set up in 1888 to fight against results-related funding Um, which had performance-related pay as a consequence for many of the teachers. And I say that because of what Dan alluded to at the beginning. So that was, you know, over a century ago. And again, we're fighting over performance-related pay today. So I don't really feel like a middle-class worker at all. I feel, you know, like working class, quite a tired pro, um, (laughs) to be honest. Um, We're also paid quite low if you look at the hours that we work so teachers particularly primary school teachers are working 60 hours a week plus 
So it actually works out that we're getting paid below minimum wage. So we very much need a union and there's a lot to fight for. So um, today, the NUT is the largest teachers union with over 300,000 teachers and members. Um, It's been policy to seek to build one teachers union for well over a decade now. And this was finally put into motion last year after negotiations with the ATL, as Dan said. Um, So they agreed to try and merge the NEU, which is the National Education Union. The final result came through with around a quarter of each of the union's membership voting overwhelmingly to merge. So obviously the numbers could be better, but the vote... So that was a quarter in terms of the turnout? Of the membership. Right. But over 90% each. Okay, so it's like a 25% turnout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big majority in favour of the merger. Yeah, yeah. Um, And to give a little bit more background to this, the NUT has historically only uh, recruited qualified teachers in schools and colleges, including uh, management... So head teachers is a bit of a problem. Maybe we can talk about that later. Mm. Whereas the ATL, so the Association for Teachers and Lecturers, um, has around 80,000 to 120,000 members. Uh, changes in where you read. Um, and that's the third largest union, I should say, that ours, the NUT, is the um, largest union at the moment for teachers. So the ATL is a membership of qualified and non-qualified educators. Um, as well as vitally unionising support workers in schools, including TAs, pastoral support, such as learning mentors, but also technically they can organise all workers within a school, so your IT workers, your catering staff, um, etc. So this merger will thus result in being an industrial union, meaning that all workers within education generally or a school locally can fight together um, in a shared struggle, which I think will lead to much more effective action, which I'll come back to. But it's worth uh, noting that this will make us the UK's fourth largest union, so potentially industrially very powerful. Um, a final background point is that NASWIT, so that stands for the National Association of school masters and women teachers, <laughs> who are the second largest teachers union at the moment, and have been dragging their heels and re- have refused to merge with us. And historically, they've played quite a retrograde role in teacher struggle. So by refusing to come out on strike action with us, for example, the latest strike that we had over terms and conditions and funding. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh background jade it's kind of interesting isn't it that for anyone who knows the a bit about the political landscape of the um, british trade union movement um, might find it a bit surprising that the atl which i think it's fair to say is historically considered more of a right-wing mm-hmm. kind of conservative union um has allowed uh support staff and other education workers to join whereas the nut which certainly in recent years kind of sees itself as being on the left of the labor movement yeah. and um, a bit more militant and combative, has until now had this um, kind of professional teachers only sort of attitude. So could you say a little bit about um, what the arguments were in the two unions? I guess you'll obviously know much more about the argument as it played out in the NUT um, yeah. vis-a-vis the merger. What yeah. were the, how did the discussion shape up and, and, what, and what were the kind of, um, what was the shape of the debate? Yeah. So first I'll talk about the concerns and then go to the positive to finish. So the first thing to say so this has been a merger organised from the top, really, which is going to create a few complications going forward. So um, as the NUT and ATL, as you said, it's historically a bit more to the right, not a strong campaigning union, haven't worked together on the ground. The ATL hasn't got much union recognition, particularly in councils like Lewisham. So moving forward, for us to organise those support staff, we need to ensure that we do get those recognition agreements and we're going to have to, you know, fight the union um, to do that. Another worry with the way this merger took place is that delegates to the special conference to vote for the merger in the NUT, and I guess it was the same for the ATL, only had a month to check the rule book and then added to this was the fact that we weren't... This is the proposed rule book. Yeah, this is the proposed rule book of the new new union, yeah. Um, And added to that was the fact that we couldn't actually amend that rule book at the conference, so it was a yes or no vote. And obviously we argued, even though of course we're fully for, you know, the merger for an industrial union, we argued that was quite anti-democratic. 
And for instance, when Unison had their merger, even though it didn't turn out too well in the end, they had a year to look at the proposed rule book and make amendments, which I think is quite good practice. Um, so some of the concerns we raised at the special conference um, included and the fact that the new joint executive committee of the NEU is going to be weighted in favour of the ATL and that was one of the conditions that the ATL put forward to the NUT and the period of the joint executive committee will last from 2017 from September when the NEU begins um, until 2019 um, so this weighting in the ATL's favour is a little bit worrying as as I said, they're much less active, campaigning, pro-striking union when compared to ours. And it would take four members of our kind of broad left, that's the right wing within the NUT, to block with them to kind of create barriers to actions that we want to see happen. And obviously this is an incredibly important time, particularly with what's going on in the Labour Party and the funding cuts and an increased kind of societal appetite for an increase in wages which I'd really love to fight for as well but I'm sure you know we'll be able to overcome that so another concern is the watered down aims and objects of the new union presumably influenced by the ATL so instead of emphasizing the union's role in organizing workers as part of a wider trade union movement any mention of collective bargaining for example has been pushed down the agenda in favor of an emphasis on influencing policy through lobbying and research. I've seen it stated on NUT Facebook as well that members think that now that we're going to be the largest union, kind of a super union they call it, um, the government will have to listen to us. But I think that's quite fanciful to be honest and no struggle is won by mere talk as we all know. So a penultimate concern before we get to the positives is whether the future of our union will remain lay-led. And this isn't because of the merger so much, but I think it's important. So due to the increase in academies, so 60% of secondary schools are academies and 50% are primaries, it's probably a little bit um, over that now, um, less schools are paying into the council-controlled facility time funds. Um, and, and these funds ensure that teachers can be the ones that work on behalf of the NUT to support um, and campaign for other, other teachers. So, um, so, it, so it gives kind of elected sort of shop stewards, if you like, the opportunity to kind of do union, union activity work. like on company time. Yeah, yeah. However, um, a motion was passed at the last conference to keep our union lay-led and the NUT leadership is discussing funding it themselves so we'll have to watch this space. Um, I think it would be a huge step backward if our union were to be run by paid officials rather than workers with the experience of the education setting themselves. Um, a final worry is the merger's stipulation that there can be no affiliation to the Labour Party until after the 2019 um, Joint Executive Committee dissolves into the final NEU. So this comes at a time when it couldn't be more obvious why we should be affiliated in the climate of a Corbyn leadership, which is sympathetic to the education sector and ready to be shaped by it. Um, furthermore, at this year's conference, it was marginally defeated that we would consider affiliation to the Labour Party just by 1%, which is actually a huge step forward for the NUT historically. It's been, it's been quite kind of anti-political in the yeah, past, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Can I ask what the arguments uh, against affiliating to the Labour Party was and why they, why they put that as a condition? Just about having autonomy, really. And I just guess what Dan said, some people within the union historically haven't been necessarily pro the Labour Party, which sounds mental, but for the first time ever in this election, more teachers are voting Labour. Mm. So, you know, historically, teachers haven't always supported the Labour Party as supported the Conservatives or the... Is, the is there an element, is there an element too of, you know, if, if you're a union that's got a conception of yourself as a kind of almost a professional association that represents people's kind of professional interests, that that doesn't necessarily, you know, if that's, if that's your self-conception, it, it kind of might make sense to sort of stay out of politics and that you would want to, you would want to be, you would want to be kind of apolitical. And obviously that's, you know, that's not 
a model of trade unionism I think anyone here would would promote or that or, or, the, or that we'd want to see but for those elements within I guess both the NET and the ATL if they see themselves at almost as professional associations then I guess there's a certain logic to not really wanting to get involved in formal politics yeah you said it beautifully <laughs> I can't add anything else to that yeah exactly what you've said um, that's the worries over should we move on to the positives Definitely, or do you want yeah. to say yes. more on that so <laughs> uh, moving forward as the NEU a bigger one automatically mean better but it does put us in a hugely advantageous position if we fight for certain methods of organising. So the first thing to do is to ensure that NEU organises as an industrial union. As I've said, this means that we must make the case for organising all workers within a school. The advantages are obvious. We have more industrial power if we can close a whole school when striking rather than part of it, which has been the case so far. Um, our campaigns within school too will be easier to win when all staff are united around a cause or a campaign and the scope for management to divide and conquer, which they often try to do, will be severely limited. And um, For me, the position of being able to organise and fight for an industrial union overrides all of the concerns that I've just stated and, you know, we've just got to make it win, there's no other option. Um, another positive step forward is the union's green light for organisers to um, organise to across academy chains. So um, one of our comrades is trying to do this in the City of London Academy at the moment and he's uh, doing that quite successfully, so it's quite exciting. Um, the move is important because uh, the NUT does not only have one employer in any given borough to negotiate with, as it has done in the past, which is obviously the local education authority, but now has huge numbers through academy chains, which are cross-borough institutions with their own managements. Um, having cross-borough academy negotiations makes much more sense from an organising perspective. Also, I think the lines are much clearer, whereas before you might have been trying to fight the council or the government, they're now going to be in dispute with their management so the class lines are quite clear there which I think is a positive thing. Um, a final positive step is the chance for our grassroots network LANAC which stands for Local Associations National Action Campaign to regroup and start fresh. So in the NAU we will be launching um, a new initiative so this is going to have a few roles. The first one is to seek to hold the new union to account and um, no one else is going to do it apart from us, um, to organise all workers in the school, and so to put the positive case forward for an industrial union across our union, and to put forward a positive programme for education. So prior to this time, previously Lanark was more of a single issue campaign, set up to push the leadership to go for strike, strike action around the pensions and pay disputes. Um, I feel excited and positive that this organisation is going to be able to put forward the case for why we need to recruit support workers, why we need to defend them and why our struggle is united. I think that can help us become a much more effective union moving forward. Um, we're talking about industrial unionism, the idea of one union for a whole industry. Mm. But in the case of your merger and going forward into the future what is the industry is the industry just schools or is it like the whole of education and if is, is there yeah. an aspiration then to extend it to further education yeah. and higher education yeah. because that would mean a lot of mergers yeah. and a yeah. lot of you know bits of other yeah. unions breaking off and you know um so at the moment we do unionise school workers, but also college workers as well. So yeah, there are uh, there are some sixth form and FE colleges where the NUT organises rather than UCU. Yeah. yeah, but something that we have the left, so not the leadership, has discussed is a possible merger with the UCU at, at one stage in time, hopefully. And also, I think you're right. We do aspire to have the whole of the education sector, so from you know nursery schools right through to universities. Um, organised together but one step at a <laughs> one step at a time but yeah that is obviously the end goal I think 
So you said in theory the ATL can organise uh, like catering staff and cleaners yeah. and people like that. In reality, how much does that actually happen? Are they very represented? Yeah. I don't know the ins and outs of the full ATL membership. Mm-hmm. I've read their rules and their rules say if their executive committee agrees, then any worker that's employed by an education institution can join. I don't think like there's loads of catering staff and IT support workers in the ATL, but there's definitely lots of support staff. Mm-hmm. Although in Lewisham, most of our support staff are in the GMB. So what I said about getting a recognition agreement, um, it's going to have to be a speedy job, basically. Okay, uh, so Jade, maybe just to kind of wrap things up, um, I wanted to ask what effect the existence of this merged union that you know, at least kind of points in the direction of, of, of a more um, expansive kind of industrial unionist type organisation, what effect that will have on your day-to-day organising as an education worker and, and teacher trade unionist. You've mentioned earlier some of the kind of struggles that education workers are facing. Um, how will the existence of the NEU um, uh, affect your, your organising and, and, and will it allow you to organise more effectively? Yeah. Okay, so the first thing to say, and I'm mainly talking about teachers and support staff so TAs and learning mentors pastoral support workers for the moment although I'll come on to IT support and catering staff and cleaners and the rest and so in the climate of cuts and support staff are being the first attacked and that only you know doesn't only affect their jobs but it affects teacher workload as well So that's a shared struggle, isn't it? So the first thing to say is, in that climate, if we're in the same union, we're much more, you know, able to fight against that collectively and, you know, we're able to have the same trade union meeting. At the moment, in my school in particular, you know, for example, um, we do discuss that union reps do meet from both of the unions and the support staff and the teachers are quite tight. But in other schools, I know that there might, there's a little bit, perhaps snobbery mm-hmm. between teachers and support staff or they're quite disconnected and maybe they don't communicate as well so I think moving forward it's going to kind of break down some of those boundaries and help people's campaigns be streamlined and just you know help them struggle together another issue that all workers in schools have been struggling with is stagnating pay so obviously we can join and campaign around that together um, increasingly, TAs are being lumbered with extra workload as well as um, teachers. So the first thing to do about this is teachers and TAs will be able to campaign for fairer work for you know a fairer workload charter between them. And further to this um, is that teachers and TAs will be able to struggle against the use of non-qualified teachers in the classroom, which in the climate of cuts is happening more and more and more. Um, So firstly, we'd be able to struggle for training for all staff. So at my school, for an example, they've just brought in TAs to cover our PPA time, which stands for Planning, Preparation and Assessment, but it's the thin end of the wedge. Some schools are, you know... TAs are covering whole classes for, you know, days at a time. Um, and obviously this is going to depress teachers' wages over time as well. So I think the first thing to do is struggle over workload together and struggle to have qualified teachers or at least trained, well-trained HLTAs teaching in classrooms and for them to be paid the same as mm. a teacher's rate, which is kind of vitally um, important. And then I guess the final thing to say is if a school is threatened with academisation because of a dud Ofsted, which is still the law, even though it's not the law for all schools to be converted to academies by 2022, um, our collective struggle will be much more streamlined. I mean, obviously, in some schools, they would work together anyway, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Um, So I think it will be very positive going forward, and I hope that... We'll see lots of struggles that win. And I think, like I said before, it will break down the barriers between teachers and TAs and, you know, help encourage solidarity, which can only be a fantastic thing. And also to say, when there are strikes, um, if we can organise, you know, IT support, 
catering, cleaners, then we can shut down the whole school, which would be really, really um, effective. And, you know, issues over pay affect them too, if not kind of, you know, workload issues or teaching issues. Thanks very much to Jade for joining us. That was uh, Jade Baker, uh, teacher from South East London and a rank and file activist in the National Union of Teachers. Uh, she sits on their Lewisham committee and she'll be active in the newly formed National Education Union um, that we were discussing, um, talking about the ways in which that sort of points the way towards a, an, an industrial unionist future for the education sector. This is labor, labor. All right, so we're going to return to a discussion of some of the issues that um, Ed sort of left us with in his presentation earlier. Um, and I just want to say tangentially, if you're wondering why the kind of quality of my audio has varied somewhat throughout this podcast it's because um liam told me i had to move further away from the microphone when ed was doing the like funny names of craft unions bit which we had to record twice because me and ellie were laughing too much the first time um which gives you an insight both into the quality of our sort of audio setup and our senses of humour. But um, also, you know, the names of modern unions are, are very dull, aren't they? They are. Well, well, which, unison, well, community. Pr- prospect, which segues quite nicely into one of the issues that you raised because um, listeners may remember our, the very first episode of this podcast, which was with, uh, featured an interview with, with Kelly Rogers from uh, the uh, Ritzy Cinema, who's been involved in organising some strikes there. Um, th- those workers are members of Beck2. Um, which until about 18 months ago was an independent union, but has since merged to become a section of Prospect. Uh, Now, Prospect is a union that organises all sorts of different workers, managers in the civil service, um, nuclear industry technicians. It's quite a strange array. And and now also includes um, Bechtu members, which are, you know, entertainment sector workers, theatre workers, and stuff like that. So that that's an amalgamation, but one that really, I would argue, kind of doesn't make any yeah doesn't make any industrial sense at all. You know, there's yeah. no, there's no sense in which really the the sort of practical industrial power of cinema workers, um, or, or for that matter, nuclear technicians, is is kind of increased by the fact of them being in the same union. So yeah, um, th- th- there is a bit of a tendency, isn't there, in the modern labour movement towards amalgamation into these like super unions that are, are quite powerful in terms of their uh, numbers of members maybe and their sort of bureaucratic infrastructure but don't particularly make any industrial sense yeah. or give um, or give their members any additional power so you've kind of got that going on at the same time as you know a situation in my industry the railway which we'll maybe talk about a little bit more later or, or, or in future episodes where there's a sort of clear you know, I would argue blindingly obvious case for sort of industrial unionist amalgamations. Yeah. But actually, we, we, workers are divided. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, the uh, arguably uh, one of the most industrial unionist unions in the country is actually Unison, which, uh, which organises in local government and health in the sort of public sector, well, the two big sections of it are local government and health in, a, in, in quite a sort of all-encompassing manner. Um, whereas at the same time, you've had mergers or proposed mergers which don't make much sense at all. So, for example, the TSSA on the railways, there was a proposed merger with, not with uh, the RMT, but with Unite. Yeah. And my union, the PCS, <laughs> had a, well, well, of course, yeah, yeah. And um, although Unite, within its own structures, does organise on a sort of industrial level because it has industrial sections, they don't always make a great deal of sense either, depending on which industry you happen to be in. Um, and, and, and as we discussed in, as we discussed in the interview with Jade, um, you know, the existence of the National Education Union maybe poses some challenges for the organisation of Unison or, or, or GMB, you know, if there's a situation now where there's one union that all workers in a school can join, does it make sense for support staff to continue to be members or to solely be members of Unison and GMB when there's a possibility to be in a kind of common organisation with teaching staff in that yeah. in that school? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I used to work in higher education and, and whenever we did any action... Uh, so this is an example of where I think craft unionism still exists. Um, whenever we did any action, firstly, it would always be described as a lecturer's strike, which would really piss me off because I was, I was support mm. staff. And I was like, well, firstly, there are as many of us. And secondly, we actually have more industrial power in a university mm-hmm. than the lecturers because, frankly, the lecturers go on strike for a couple of days. Like, who even goes to their lectures anyway? I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the IT department goes on strike for two days and the entire university loses its shit and no one can get anything done. So it's you're also thinking about where is the industrial power in a, in a given workplace. But there's, there was a real deference in the support unions. Even though I think we had more power, there was a real deference to, like, we've got to wait and see what the UCU do because that's where all the academics are and those are the people that the management really listen to. And it was almost a sort of doffing the cap sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of attitude towards the, the sort of high, higher paid, higher skilled, in inverted commas, workers and the academics, you know. So it definitely, you definitely still get these craft. I'm sure you get them on the railways as well with uh, different grades and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so I work on London Underground where um, the RMT is, is by far the biggest union. And quite apart from anything else, um, you know, and this is important in terms of some of what you, you said, Ed, and, and some of what Jade was saying about the kind of attitudes of that different grades of workers have to each other. I think there's something quite symbolically powerful in an organisation that groups together all the different types of workers that, that work on the tube. So in, in, in my union, we've got station staff, drivers, engineers, fleet maintenance workers, signalers, service controllers, cleaners, the people who work in the canteens, in the, the staff canteens, in the train depots. Revenue inspectors, you know, anybody, um, any type of work that, you you know, you can think of that goes on on the underground, the RMT organises workers in in, in that sector and that that is quite sort of powerful and important, um, you know, in in all sorts of ways. Um, One sort of challenge to this model, which... um, is 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 maybe a kind of new development or, or or maybe not is is you know the amount of outsourcing that exists in in pretty much every industry now prevents some some kind of legislative and structural challenges to this so for example RMT could not legally ballot me and my colleagues on London underground stations in support of a dispute or a struggle of cleaners because we've because got different, different we've employer. got different employers yeah. right so that kind of classical industrial unionist idea of you know the point of industrial amalgamation is all the workers are in the same organization and you can kind of use the power of the workers who maybe have slightly more industrial leverage to support the struggles of workers who maybe have slightly less mm. that's that's made much more difficult by the, the, the kind of legislative and, and structural realities of, of outsourcing. But the fact that we've got a common organisation, we've got common spaces, you know, branch meetings, regional councils, whatever, where outsourced and directly employed workers can kind of come together and discuss how best to overcome those challenges and, and to support each other, um, you know, that's that's a start. If, mm. if, that, if that sort of common space and common organisation wasn't there, we'd be in a much weaker position. You know, there's still plenty of difficulties within the RMT. Um, you do still get some sort of sectional attitudes. And I've been in meetings where workers from one section of the workforce have said about a particular dispute, look, we don't really feel up for taking action on this. We don't. We, we think this is a station staff issue or this is a driver's issue. This doesn't really affect us. Um, we're not up for taking action on that. Um, so even though you're in the same union and you've got a kind of industrial unionist model, it doesn't mean all your members are going to have sort of militant industrial unionist consciousness. Also being in this all being in the same union sometimes can be can be problematic because because of the way that management responsibilities have been devolved so much onto lower grades. So like if you're in unison, there's a reasonable chance that your manager is also in unison. They might even be your rep. Yeah. You know, I have had experience of uh, having to sit across the table from a manager who as a as a union officer was one of my members in the branch Mm. but as a manager was doing something that none of the other members wanted to do so there's a 
potentially a, a limitation to the industrial unionist because it but back in the old days you would have a very clear distinction between you know the foreman or the bosses mm. and everyone else now they've pushed management down as onto as low a grade as they possibly can and it sort of muddies the waters a little yeah well that's that, this is something we're struggling with very directly um on the underground because it's only in the last sort of year and a bit that direct disciplinary sort of responsibility has been devolved down onto the kind of shop floor level if you like so previously it wasn't the case that you would ever be working in an operational capacity alongside somebody who could discipline you um, but but now but now you can yeah. so i re- i represent you know in my kind of constituency if you like as a rep some of the people i represent also have the power to discipline me um, and 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 conversely there are in other areas, lots of RMT reps who are in that grade, yeah. who who have potentially have disciplinary power over their own members. So, um, sure that that you know that definitely poses a challenge. I mean, one thing that I know that SOGAP, one of the old printers' unions, used to do is that they would allow uh, management grades to be members, but they would they would have meetings where those people weren't invited. Mm. Yeah, and they would have they would have their own meetings, and they so you would you'd sort of square the circle of, but yes, you're in the same union, but you can't just have the management grade members coming and sitting in on... Yeah, well, discussion. I mean, his- historically, the way the RMT on, on the underground has dealt with that is 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 precisely in, in that way. So um, we've always had members for management grades, historically, um, but they've, had, they've kind of had their own branch. So you would never have a situation where you would be in a branch meeting or, or, or be represented by... Or potentially be represented by someone who had disciplinary power over you, but now that they've devolved disciplinary power down to the kind of operational level, we can't really do that because you know we we want to we want to kind of maintain and encourage the idea that those workers, customer service managers as they're called now, are part of the kind of shop floor workforce. Yeah. So it wouldn't really make sense to to say, okay, look, you've got to leave the branch, you've got to go into this different manager's branch. Yeah. But at the same time, it is obviously a you know a challenge that. Um, discipline's been kind of devolved down in that way um, another challenge is uh, kind of overcoming yeah I guess not I guess snobbery might be the right word you can you can get a little bit of like grade based hierarchies developing and consciously or unconsciously sometimes the struggles of workers who are maybe seen as a bit less industrially powerful or a bit harder to organize can sometimes get sidelined so even in an industrial in, in a kind of industrial union type model like the RMT has um, we still need to work constantly to develop cultures of solidarity. Yeah. Um, but again, having a common organisational framework just, just gives you a much, much higher platform to do that than if you were divided between separate unions. I think we're going to be talking about um, past and present struggles on the railway in more depth in a future episode. So there'll be further detail about some of this stuff in that. But I think you only need to look at the way some of the disputes against the imposition of driver-only operation have panned out on the main line um, to see how much more powerful rail workers would be if we had one industrial union instead of the present division between my union RMT and ASLEF which is a, um, a drivers only union that, that has a pretty substantial majority amongst train drivers um, on the main line. It also has a majority amongst London Underground tube drivers although a slightly smaller one. Um, now rank and file ASLEF members have been really commendably solid in a lot of places in those anti-driver-only operation disputes, either by refusing to cross RMT picket lines or in situations where ASLEF itself has been in dispute, such as on Southern. Um, the ASLEF rank and file have really dug their heels in and, and have, have rejected several times now. Um, and, and, and again, very recently, just in the few days before this podcast was recorded, um, attempts by their leaders to settle their dispute in exchange for some pretty paltry concessions. Um, so that's really laudable. But to me, um, it's just so obvious that those disputes would have been much stronger from the start if that whole section of the workforce hadn't been in a different union. And maybe just to kind of wrap up this 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 sort of little monologue, I think it, it really comes down to what you think a union is for um, or even what you think a union is. So if you think that a trade union is mainly about service provision or providing individual representation like a kind of insurance policy slash legal yeah. service. Benevolent funds, as they Yeah, then, then I guess it sort of makes sense for that to be organised on as specialised and specific a basis as possible so it can be directly tailored to the needs of the individuals to whom the service is being provided. 
But if, on the other hand, you see union organisation as being fundamentally collective about organising workers to expand our power and push back the power of the employer, then the idea that we're better off if we're divided up on the basis of what type of work we do just doesn't make sense. So you've been listening to the fourth episode of Labour Days. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. So far, we've heard from Ed, who gave us our historical section. We've heard from Daniel, who is a railway worker and has given us some really great insights into what's going on in the railways and and the RMT. And we've also heard from our special guest, who I think we can all agree was amazing, uh, Jade, who is a teacher from South London and uh, a member of the NUT. And to see us out, our producer Liam will be breaking his vow of silence and leaving us with a few inspiring words from friend of the show, James Connolly. The power of industrial unionism to transform the dry detail work of trade union organisation into the constructive work of revolutionary socialism and thus make the unimaginative trade unionist a potent factor in the launching of a new society cannot be overestimated. It invests the sordid details of the daily incidents of the class struggle with a new and beautiful meaning and presents them in their true light as skirmishes between the two opposing armies of light and darkness. Labour Days was presented by Ed Mustill, Daniel Randall and Ellie Clark and produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. The special guest was Jade Baker. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Labour Days podcast and Twitter at Labour underscore days. Download Labour Days on iTunes. So, you know all the stuff where we gave a sort of comprehensive critique and refutation of the limitations of syndicalism and a sort of extensive reassertion of like Bolshevik policy on the party question. You you got all that stuff, right? <laughs>